All right. Since the 1920s, you were around for that, right, Larry? I'm just picking on Larry. <laughs> Since the 1920s, people have observed and celebrated the feast day of Christ the King. So it's fairly recent. And in the 1970s, this feast and celebration was moved to the last Sunday after Pentecost, which is also the last Sunday of the Christian year, and the Sunday before the new year begins with Advent. So, in accordance with the revised common lectionary, Happy New Year, church! As United Methodist Christ the King Sunday uh, is set aside as a special celebration of the coming reign of Jesus Christ and the completion of creation. So in alignment with the new year and the celebratory nature of this day, you notice there was champagne offered back there this morning. Not really, it was sparkling grape juice, but you get the idea. If we are going to be intentional, though, and if we are going to set aside a day to acknowledge and celebrate this extremely high Christological concept of Jesus coming with the clouds, as we heard Lorraine read, if we truly want to be devout in our worship and exaltation of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, then I thought it would be fun to take a closer look at what kind of king Jesus is, was, and will be. And this is super fun, because when we start reading from the book of Revelation, and when we start talking about the coming reign of Jesus and the completion of creation, we have to be a little careful because we're essentially wading into the waters of theological speculation. The world is not yet ended. And as to what that looks like, nobody knows. But these are things that we believe could be true. And we boldly hope in faith for the God whom we love to reveal God's self to the world. Gary started talking about apocalyptic Jesus last week, so we are well prepared for today. The fun part of all this is that we get to contemplate the end of days and the coming reign of Jesus Christ. And as we read and hear the gospel message, we get to take on an anagogical approach to our reading and hearing, anagogical. How many have heard that word before? <coughs> you don't count. <clears throat> anagogical is really just a big fancy word for looking at scripture with this end times mindset. When we read and look and hear this passage, we want us to look at it with this idea of what does this tell us about the final reality into which we are moving? What does this tell us about the coming kingdom of God? So having that little bit of background on Christ the King Sunday and having heard a few verses already from Revelation, I invite you now to think anagogically, which may not be a word, but think anagogically as the sermon text is read. What does this text from John's gospel tell us about the coming reign of Jesus and God's kingdom? How is this exchange with an earthly ruler 
going to help us come to a better understanding of the kind of king Jesus is, was, and will be. <coughs> so this is from John chapter 18. I'm going to read verses 28 to 40. They took Jesus from Caiaphas to Pilate's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the headquarters so as to avoid ritual defilement and so they could still eat the Passover. So Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if he were not a criminal, we wouldn't have even brought him here. And Pilate checked his watch and said, it's too early for this nonsense. Pilate said to them, well, then take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews replied, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill what Jesus had said when he indicated the kind of death he would have. So then Pilate went back inside and he summoned Jesus and he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, um, did you ask that on your own or did somebody tell you that? And Pilate replied, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, then my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate said, oh, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this I was born. And for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, what is truth? And after they had this little conversation, Pilate comes back out to the Jews again and told them, I find no case against him, but you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And they all shouted in reply, no. Give us Barabbas, the thief, the bandit. It's the word of God for the people of God. As we recall the passion of Jesus and the events around his persecution and death, the title King of the Jews is used on three separate occasions. In the first such episode, in all four Gospels, it was stated that the title was used for Jesus when he was interviewed by Pilate and that his crucifixion was based on this charge. In our gospel reading this morning, Jesus hints that the king label did not originate with Pilate, but with others. And Jesus still goes on to say, my kingdom, my kingdom is not from this world. And through all of their exchanges, Jesus never directly denies being the king of the Jews. Later on, Pilate will write, Jesus the Nazarene, king of the Jews, as a sign to be affixed to the cross. The Jews will then come back and say to Pilate, don't write king of the Jews. 
Just say that was something that he said he was. Pilate, remembering how early they showed up at his doorstep, said, oh no, I wrote what I wrote. And the third example comes after all this trial when the soldiers are mocking Jesus. They call him king of the Jews. They put on him a purple robe signifying royalty. They place upon his head a crown of thorns. And then they beat, mistreat, and they crucify this king, our king. And these aren't even the only references to kingship or King Jesus in the Gospels. As we read of Jesus' birth and as we recall the nativity, which we're really going to dig into next week, we find that the Gospel of Matthew tells us that when the Magi go to see King Herod the Great in Jerusalem, they go before King Herod and says, where is he that is born? King of the Jews. Well, this question troubles Herod, who considers that title to be his own. And so he tries to trick the Magi into revealing the location of Jesus. They're not going to do it. They depart without informing Herod of Jesus' location. So Herod orders the execution of all young male children in the village of Bethlehem in an effort to avoid the loss of his throne to this newborn king. The Massacre of the Innocents. The title of king is threatening. It implies power, majesty, might, money, wealth, glory, and influence. All the things that humanity has lusted for. All the things that we have fought for, died for, and killed for. King Herod killed children. Peter's age, killed children because he thought that one of them was a threat to his power, his wealth, and his position. Men who found the teaching and preaching of Jesus to be contrary to their own established power, their traditional rules, and the influence that they had over the people, they handed him over to be crucified by the empire. Christ our King was betrayed by his own followers, his own people, shouting instead for Barabbas. All because there was, and in many ways still is, a broad misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God is really all about. When Jesus was brought bound in chains before Pilate, Pilate did not recognize a king, did not see a king. Pilate did not see Jesus as royalty standing before him because Jesus was, is, and will be a king like no other. And we're recounting all of this today, and we're thinking anagogically, because in as much as we anticipate the coming of our Lord and Savior, Z95 has already switched over to Christmas music, as much as we look forward to this, and as wonderful as the new year will be, and as beautiful as the words of the prophets are, you will hear them, Isaiah, 
A son born to us, a child given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, the prince of peace. His authority shall grow continually and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. As beautiful and as wonderful as that is and will be, we must also acknowledge that the reign of Christ and the completion of creation is only brought about through great sacrifice, great love, and death. Christ was born for this. Christ was born for this. The same prophet that foretells of this child, this son, the prophet that says there will be an end to gloom and anguish that prophesies a light shining into the deep darkness also notes that this same child will grow to be a man that had no form or majesty that we should even look at him. He will be, grow to be a man who was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering acquainted with infirm, infirmity, a man who will be counted among the transgressors. What a unique king we have and what a confusing kingdom we belong to. Now, apart from the images displayed today and the information we've covered so far, there is a theology that promotes Christ the victor, Christus victor, Christ the conqueror above all else. A theology that puts Jesus the king atop a great white stallion riding into battle. We sing about it. Ride on, King Jesus. No man can hinder me. Ride on. You heard the song? Onward, Christian soldiers marching. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the free. You heard any of that? Okay. There is a theology around that, and there's space for that. It is scriptural, as they say, but, but this theology has the potential to be distorted in a very dangerous way because it is easily used to promote a false duality in creation. And here's what I mean by that. When we take Jesus down from the cross and we put him on a horse or in a tank as a commanding general, because I've seen that picture. It allows for people to equate the power of Jesus and the power of sacrificial love with the power of sin, making them equal. And that, my friends, is heresy. It's heresy because there is nothing as strong as or stronger than the love of God as demonstrated by Jesus Christ, not death, not life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor heights or depths, nor anything in all creation that compares to the love of God in Christ Jesus, our King. Jesus is not locked in some eternal battle with Satan or on a football field knocking helmets with the devil for our eternal souls. That's not a game that's being played. There has never been any question about who is, 
who was and who will be in charge. But as with so many things, Jesus, in revealing the nature of God and in providing us with an example of our future glory, shows us that the current and coming kingdom of God will not be brought about with fighting, will not be brought about with force, weapons, coercion, or money, but with truth, mercy, humility, and sacrifice. And this is what Jesus has been trying to convey to his disciples as they've been arguing about who among them would be the greatest. And his words were so foreign to them, so completely upside down and backwards to their own limited way of thinking that when Jesus told them he was going to be handed over, told them he was going to be killed, it didn't compute. Not only did they not understand, they didn't even think to ask any other questions. It was so foreign to them. And so Jesus tries to explain it so many times. He's walking around, picking up random people's children, trying to provide an example about the kingdom of God. Everything he says, the last shall be first. Let the children come to me. Give up your money, camels, needles, all of that. But still the disciples sought power, fortune, and fame. They argued and they fought all things that are contrary and diametrically opposed to the completion of creation and the kingdom of God. Jesus said, my kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, then my followers would be fighting. So anagogically, that tells us that the kingdom of God is not like this world. In this world, there is fighting. There are wars, battles, guns, greed, and death. So perhaps, perhaps, when the kingdom has come and creation is completed, there will be no more wars to be fought, no battles to be won. These are the fun eschatological, anagogical questions. Are there going to be guns in heaven? Are we going to spend eternity in a power struggle looking to see who's holier than thou above the clouds? Are we going to have access to all that heavenly treasure we've been storing up? How does the godly stock market work? Where are we going to invest all that? My kingdom is not from here. I left my kingdom behind. I stepped down from my throne. For this I was born. For this I came into the world to testify to the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? The current and coming kingdom of God is not of this world. And it is difficult to understand what that might mean and it's even harder to visualize what that might be because we live in this world. And this world is one that is fraught with fighting and also one that struggles with truth. And it is Jesus, our King, who gave his life trying to show this to us. Just think, 
How many times did Jesus have to repeat himself or clarify himself? How many times did Jesus intervene in violent or uncomfortable situations? How many times is Jesus on record as saying, I tell you the truth? The current and coming kingdom of God is not of this world. And it is difficult to understand what that might mean, even harder to visualize it, because we live in this world, a world filled with fighting and a world that struggles with truth. And because of that, we boldly hope in faith for the God whom we love to reveal God's self to the world. And there are some, there are some who are waiting for the heavens to open and for the Son of Man to appear with clouds clothed in a long robe and a golden sash across his chest. There are some who are anticipating the day when Christ will appear with his head and hair as white as snow, with his eyes like flames of fire, his feet like burnished bronze refined as in a furnace, speaking with a voice that sounds like a mighty river, holding seven stars in his hands, speaking with a sharpened double-edged sword while his face shines with the full force of the sun. That's all from Revelation. That may yet still happen. But that is not yet a king I am familiar with. This one is. This is the king I am familiar with because this is the king who was. But as for what will be, we don't know. The gospel writer this morning will later to go on to write, what will be has not yet been revealed. But we do know this. When Christ is revealed, we will be like him for we shall see him as he is. So as we conclude our liturgical year, and we prepare our hearts, our minds, and this church for a season of waiting, longing, and watching as we anticipate the birth of a king, I'll close out the sermon this morning with a poem for Christ the King by the Reverend Pamela Cranston. She's Episcopalian. See how this homeless babe lifted himself down into his humble crash and laid his tender glove of skin against that splintered wood, found refuge in that rack of raspy straw. Home on that chilly dawn, in sweetest silage, those shriven stalks. See how this outcast king lifted himself high upon his savage cross, extended the regal banner of his bones, draping himself upon his throne.
his battered feet, his wounded hands, not fastened there by nails, but sewn by the strictest thorn of love. Happy New Year. Amen.